Your weekend begins in Crystal Palace Wine Country with sommelier Crystal Cameron Shad. And welcome to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in on this Saturday morning. We're talking with the lovely Nicole Abiyunas today. She is a Virginia native turned California winemaker who is getting quite a reputation for her Pinot Noir. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for calling in today. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Uh, Must be having a little warmer weather out your way, I would assume. Um, Maybe a little warmer than Virginia, but not much. Okay. It's in the 40s in the morning and uh, not raining anymore, though, so that's well, the that's good a, news. Yeah, the sun finally came out today, so we were very yeah. excited about that. So, Nicole, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your journey in the business. Uh, I know you're from the Hampton Roads area, and you've kind of been all over the world in your pursuit of making wine, and you settled in California. So can you kind of uh, just kind of walk us through what um, what made you get into the wine business and talk a little bit about your journey? Sure. It's a, it's a long story, but I'll condense it here for you. Um, Yes, born and raised in Norfolk, Virginia, went to school there um, and college in William & Mary, and then um, decided I wanted to get out of Virginia for a little while and ended up with two internships, one in London and one in Brussels. In London, I was working with a caterer and wine merchant, fortunately, so uh, we taught wine appreciation courses um, to a couple different schools. And uh, and so that was my chance to really learn about um, wine in general. I had no idea there were so many varietals, and the varietals were were different depending on where they were grown and how they were grown and how they were made. And so I just became fascinated with the wine and um, also wanted to learn how to cook food. So uh, after I returned from Brussels to Virginia, I researched where, where I could go. And um, fortunately for me, unfortunately for my family, they... A few friends suggested California, Napa. So I came out here to visit and ended up getting enrolled in the Culinary Institute out here. And uh, so started my my cooking journey, but uh, also began the wine journey by taking the few wine courses they had to offer. That's very cool. Um, and, you know, food and wine, it's yeah. just a, such, such mm-hmm. a, obviously a wonderful pairing. So you can't have yeah, one without yeah. the other, in my opinion. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and luckily the wine courses um, didn't, keep us in the classroom. They took us out into the wineries. Um, so we got to meet the winemakers. We really got to see how it all happened, all the action. And I, um, I had the chance to, to ask the winemakers, you know, kind of how could I get in it more? How, what could I do? Do I need to go to school and get the degree or, or just, you know, what, what, what did they suggest? And, and so one of them said for me to just come and help out, it was harvest time just come when I didn't have any culinary class um, and and work in the winery and just see see what you know what happens. So I did, and that was at Swanson Vineyards. That was back in '95. Sorry. Um, so I worked there uh, during the harvest, and then <clears throat> and then fortunately found a place to work in Australia right after that harvest. <clears throat> so I went up. And, Moved to Australia, worked that vintage, came back, and then actually uh, went to France after that and worked two harvests. Wow, okay. And where, in, where in France were you? One in Sauterne first, and mm-hmm. there was a viticulture and enology school there as well. So I took the courses in French, um, and I watched over the girls in the dorm, and I worked in the winery. And then uh, from there, I went to Burgundy and worked the next vintage, which is where I fell in love with Pinot Noir. And that's obviously translated uh, to what you're mm-hmm. doing out in California. We'll get to um, your your wine portfolio in just a few minutes. But from your time in Australia and then some time in France and obviously really falling in love with Burgundy and Pinot Noir, uh, what made you take that leap of faith to start your own label? 
Well, when I came back from Burgundy, I was trying to find some some work. At that time of year, it was it wasn't as easy. It wasn't harvest anymore, so it took me a little while to kind of land my feet back in a winery. Um, that was Luna Vineyards. John Consgard was the winemaker at the time, so he brought me on board, and I was just a cellar rat, as they call us, uh, cleaning tanks and scrubbing floors and doing all the fun menial labor. Um, but before I knew it, they actually promoted me to cellar master even above the, the two men that were in the cellar before me. So I was now in charge of making sure everything the winemakers wanted done in the winery got done, opening and closing and, and just processing all the fruit and ordering supplies and everything you could think of. So all of a sudden, this uh, one friend of mine who was in the cellar and I thought, wait a minute, we're doing all the work here. And um, we know how much all these wines are going for that are in these barrels, and maybe we should buy our own fruit. So both of us actually started our own projects there at Luna, and we were very fortunate that they let us make it there and store it there. So it just kind of happened. What a, yeah, what a great night. little experiment to be able to have that resource available to you to kind of, you know, kind of uh, dip your toes oh, in the yeah. water, if you will. Oh, yeah, very lucky, very fortunate. It doesn't happen very often. And, um, and you know, we thank the winemakers all the time for that experience because then from there we both launched our own brands. That's very cool. And I know your mm-hmm. your obviously your, your wine is your family name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not the easiest to pronounce. No. So you actually have, and I, I, I say that, I say that because there's a, there's, a, there's a reason why you chose the logo to have something else to talk about, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. It took a while. Once I figured I had too much wine for my family to drink and I had to form a company. <laughs> is that possible to have too much wine in your family to drink? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is possible. It is possible. <laughs> um, but I, I really couldn't figure out what to call it. And I like our last name, but yes, it is difficult to pronounce. So I, I thought, well, I'll still call it Abby Eunice, but let me put this lotus flower on there, which um, kind of ties into the other part of my life of teaching yoga and, and, um, and just the whole philosophy behind that, where mm-hmm. you know the the lotus is is very similar to the to the grapes. It has its roots in the in the muddy water, and the beautiful flower opens it in the evening. And when the flower's closed, it symbolizes potential, quite like the the grape buds. And so I just thought it would be something nice to catch your eye, so you didn't have to pronounce Abby Eunice. I want the bottle with the lotus on it, right? Yes, there exactly. Well, the other cool thing, too, with your name, Abby Eunice, it's definitely an original name. And I think your your parents, uh, your father is a Lebanese descent, right? Yes, correct. So when you look at the beginnings of wine, I think it was meant to be that you were supposed to have a wine label, right? I'm, I must have, it must be. I think so. I think the karma <laughs> was working out there in your favor for that. Yes. So talk a little bit about, uh, you started your label in, was it 2000? Yeah, 99, I made a small batch of Sangiovese there at Luna. But okay. then it was in 2000 when I actually purchased uh, my first batch of Pinot Noir. And so you are a, you don't actually have a vineyard. You source fruit from other vineyard sites, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. And uh, I've continued on that way because really these vineyard sites that I source from allow me to, I mean, I work closely with the growers and I have, we have our own rows designated for Avionis. So no one else is going to, you know, pick, pick my rows. They can't say when to turn off the water or not. So we really have, we can really farm it the way we want to farm it. And um, and then not have all that risk of, 
you know, all the things the growers. Oh, absolutely. Face. I mean, all the risk and all the capital investments, mm-hmm. too. It kind of gives exactly. you the opportunity to do what you love doing best. And mm-hmm. I think a lot right. of people that may be listening, listening in may not understand kind of the difference between, you know, a winery and a vineyard and that, uh, you know, we have growers that simply just grow for other producers and we have winemakers that source fruit from other places as well. So just wanted exactly. to kind of make that delineation that, you know, you are a winemaker and you're sourcing fruit from some of the, you know, some wonderful micro sites. I know you're doing some stuff from um, the Vanderkamp vineyards and from Carneros yeah. as well. Uh, what is mm-hmm. so appealing about Carneros for you, especially with Pinot Noir? I think it's just one of the best spots for Pinot Noir. I know the writers have tended to disagree over the years, but um, for me, it's just got these characteristics. When, when I have all my Pinots lined up, that the, the, my Carneros Pinot are the ones that people tend to gravitate towards the most. It's very just, interesting. Very approachable, soft tannins. Again, part of this comes from the way I make it, mm-hmm. um, and that's why there's so many different um, styles of well, of all different pinots and all different wines. But um, but you can really, if you work it properly, the way I learned in Burgundy, you can really draw out the earthiness, the mushroomy kind of forest floor notes, but also this really jammy strawberry fruit, um, and then get really soft, supple tannins. And and to me, um, that's just what I like about. Carneros is just overall a really balanced, delicious, you know. And for those listening in, it's also one of those cooler climates because a lot of people think they think Napa or they think, oh, it's so hot. Pinot can't do well there. But obviously right. Carneros and we there are those beautiful microclimates kind of hidden in there. I know Anderson Valley is another one that's usually traditionally a little mm-hmm. cooler than Napa. Um, so all right. of that really matters when you're, uh, you know, when you're producing uh, great wine, finding the the right microclimate for that particular grape to grow in. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um climate for a second as far as temperatures are concerned and the drought. Uh, we're going to get to Pinot Noir. We're going to talk all about your portfolio coming up in a few minutes. But I did want to spend, I know you guys have kind of gotten some monsoons out your way lately after many <laughs> years of a of really bad drought. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about um, what that's doing to the vineyards out there uh, as far as the drought? And then has this recent uh, rain provided some relief for you guys? Well, the drought, yes, it has been ongoing and it's, um, and it's, it's been affecting the, the, the crops all over the board, although grapes often are dry farmed, so they don't need as much as people think um, for, for the, the nourishment and bringing it up from the soil, but they do need it for the, the growing phases. Um, and right now, since we had all these monsoons, now people are actually rushing to prune, so you need to prune the vineyards in time and in between these rains and the, and the frost. And um, and then you also end up having vineyards, unfortunately, because of it's so dry here um, and has been for years. Right. There's no, there's not a lot of place for the water to go, so that's why we've been having all these flash flood warnings. And 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 I, as I drive by, I see so many vineyards, um, mostly obviously on the valley floor, that are underwater, and so they don't really like to have their feet like much like we do, <laughs> standing right. in. in <laughs> Stuck in standing water. So, um, and of course, when you're on the valley floor, you don't have usually as good drainage as you have on the slopes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of making, you know, obviously a, a lot more work for these for the vineyard owners to, to really get the drainage done properly. And is it too um, early to kind of tell prune. what what um, what impact this may have on the 2017 crop? This will impact more probably the 2018 actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it it, ha- it has to do more with the following year um, than the year now. Obviously, pruning time right now will affect it, and then rain. If we get rain in the spring when, when there's budding or pollinate, you know, sure. that'll affect it. But um, 
but yeah, it's quite interesting how the vines kind of go the the following year. And right, and then the, just yeah. the drastic difference of so dry to so wet. I mean, that always has to have some kind of impact on you know anything viticultural. Exactly. It's very interesting. Thanks for that little update on that. Nicole, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, I want to get into uh, Pinot Noir. So stay with us. You're listening to Crystal Palette's Wine Country on Seville 107.5 and 1260 WCHV. Wine Studio. Understanding our world through wine and our part in that world. Wine Studio is a Twitter-based beverage education program produced by certified sommelier Tina Mori, who's worked in the food and wine industry for over 20 years. Wine Studio is grassroots marketing for beverage brands, regional organizations, PR firms, all who would like to reach millions each weekly session. Wine Studio also benefits tasting participants who meet winemakers, taste exciting wines, and become involved with beverage cultures from all over the world. Follow the Twitter hashtag, Wine Studio. That's hashtag, Wine Studio. Tuesdays, 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and join the conversation. For more information, visit winestudiotina.weebly.com. And welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for staying with us. Nicole Abiunas is with us from California. She's calling in, and we're talking about Abiunas Wines and her Pinot Noir. And since Valentine's Day is right around the corner, I hope you've gotten your loved one something special, maybe a bottle of wine perhaps. I thought it would be fun to talk about Pinot Noir because Pinot is often referred to as one of the most sexiest and sensual grapes out there. In fact, I would say this would be the Matthew McConaughey of grapes. Wouldn't you say, Nicole? <laughs> Oh, that's a good comparison. I like that. Yeah, sexiest grape alive, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's been plenty of wine writers who have gotten right on that bandwagon. For example, Robert Parker said, when it's great, Pinot Noir produces the most complex, hedonistic, and remarkably thrilling red wine in the world. And then Joe Fleischman from Vanity Fair had this to say, at their best, Pinot Noir is one of the most romantic of wines with so voluptuous a perfume, so sweet an edge, and so powerful a punch like falling in love. They make the blood run hot and the soul wax embarrassingly poetically. That is just... I love it. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Uh, and that's just a couple. If you Google Pinot Noir, you'll find all of these amazing quotes. And if you've not had that kind of euphoric experience with the Pinot Noir, chances are you're not drinking the right ones. Exactly. Uh, and Nicole, you uh, you really kind of learned from the best. You learned in Burgundy. Uh, I think you were mm-hmm. in Pomard, if I'm not mistaken. Talk a little yeah. bit about your love affair with Pinot. Well, yes, it did start in, in Burgundy. Um, I ended up uh, working the harvest there and and was just fascinated, really, by what goes into it. Um, it is is a very thin skin, delicate grape, so you have to be very delicate in your winemaking. Um, but you can extract the most beautiful, complex aromas. And um, it really does kind of, it's just, it's just to me, it has it all. It's not too overpowering. It, it can be too light at times, but um, it's just such a versatile, wonderful grape. And very- when I was in Burgundy, I learned really how to um, draw out the best of it um, and not all of it, because you draw out all of it, and and then it, and then you lose, you lose that wonderful aroma. 
It really is a special grape, and I know it's very, you know, finicky, as you mentioned. It tends to like cooler microclimates in general. I think that's mm-hmm. why, you know, the East Coast has had a hard time, especially Virginia, where very humid microclimates. So there's a few right. people that are doing it very well, but you're not seeing it mainstream. You're seeing it at higher elevations. Uh, most of the Pinot mm-hmm. in the world is grown at higher elevations. Um, but when you look at this this grape and you look at how I kind of liken it to Chardonnay from the perspective that so many people are manipulating it way too much. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're over-oaked or they're mixed with too many other things. When you look at mm-hmm. the wine laws, for example, in Burgundy, for those of you that may not know listening in, it's 100% Pinot. And I know you're doing, I believe right. you're doing that with all of your Pinots as well. And right. in California or a lot of the United States, for, for the matter, you only have to have 75% of that varietal to be called what it is on the label. So mm-hmm. when you see a very inky, dark Pinot, chances are that there's a little adulteration going on. There's a little bit of a you know blend going on. And not that it's not mm-hmm. a quaffable wine, but it's not really varietally intact. Exactly. And so as someone that really has that love affair like you do and that passion for creating, you know, exquisite Pinot Noir, tell people a little bit about what the telltale, I know it varies a little bit between climate, terroir, winemaker, but what are the characteristic notes of a, of a, of a well-grown Pinot Noir? To me, I get the red berries, uh, the strawberry, you know, raspberry, some, some sometimes blackberries, depending on where it is, but, but definitely... Um, these beautiful berry notes, uh, as opposed to cherries or, you know, which you get more in, in cabs and other varietals. So I, I get a lot of the, the berry and then, um, and then the earthiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always say mushroomy cause it, it, it is almost like the fresh mushrooms grown in the soil and, right. and the forest floor. And, um, I, I get these, um, you know, potpourri tea notes, sometimes rose petally, a lot of violet often, um, depending on where it's grown. So um, to me, again, it's just it's just got these more delicate, um, sensual aromas to this it, is, rather is... than the big, dark, overpowering. And and again, as you said, you can you can manipulate it too much, or you can uh, pick it too late, so it's too ripe, and 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 then you're pushing the limits, and you're and you're having it taste more like a like a Syrah or a bigger, you know, a, a, just a completely different varietal. What's the perfect, uh, in your opinion, what's that perfect, like, alcohol level for a Pinot? Um, to me, under 14 and a half. Um, I don't like to go over that. And there, there are many that are delicious under 14, um, you know, in the, in the 13, 13 and a half range. Um, it really depends on, on what does the fruit taste like when you're picking it, right. you know, because, because that's, that, that's the most important to me. The other things can be adjusted. Um, but how is it tasting when you pick it? And that's probably, as a, as a winemaker, that is kind of the, I mean, there's so many elements that goes into winemaking all year long. But when it comes to picking that fruit at the exact right time, that is such mm-hmm. a critical component to what goes in the bottle, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk yeah. about a little bit about your lineup. I know, I think you have, uh, you have three different Pinots? Uh, three or four, depending on the year, okay. kind of changes. And, and now we have a Pinot Meunier in the book, which is very, very exciting. Oh, that's very cool. Let's talk about that in just mm-hmm. one second. But let's talk about okay. the difference between, I think you're doing two from Carneros and one from Sonoma right now for your Pinots? Yes. So let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the difference between like Stanley Ranch and your Vanderkamp Pinot. Okay, so um, I've been working with the Stanley Ranch property the longest, since 2000. That was my first pick. Um, and it used to be one clone, old vine clone, uh, planted back in the 70s, and um, and then as that vine, as those vines um, kind of decreased in production, they started 
uh, replanting with other clones. So now I have the Stanley Ranch bottling, which is a blend of uh, three clones, 114777 and a little pomard. But then I also bottle the Pomard clone on its own because uh, that is where I worked in Burgundy, Pomard. And I just find when I did the trials, the clonal trials, it's, a, it's an amazing standalone clone, uh, which sounds funny. But, but um, And there are very few people that, that do that. I think a lot of people do blend um, the clones right. uh, for Pinot, um, not blending varietals, as you said, but just blending the clones. And um and it's it's necessary often because it does it does make a more balanced wine. You know, one clone will give you more of the mid palate. One will give you some more dark fruit. One will give you a little higher acid. One, you know, so so now that's why for the Stanley Ranch, I I pick that. I make it basically in the vineyard. <clears throat> so as I'm tasting the fruit, and this is why it's nice to not to to be able to kind of pick from our rows. I can say I just want one ton of the one one four and one of the one half ton of the seven 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 and you know. It, and a little dash of the pomard this year because as I'm tasting as it's growing, then I can kind of get a feeling for what's this wine going to be like in the bottle. And over the years, you've obviously learned what you know what 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 amount of what works best um, yes. in your bottlings. Um, if you could mm-hmm. briefly, just so uh, you know, for people listening in that may not know a lot about clones, uh, can you talk to that for like maybe a minute? Just talk about. Um, not necessarily what the differences are, but what does it mean when you say Pinot Noir clones? When you say Dijon clone or Pomard clone, what does that mean? So um, what I usually tell people are there's there are many clones of, of all these different varietals, um, and I say it's kind of when you think of an apple, you you know what an apple is, but then mm-hmm. there are so many different kinds of apples. Your Gala, your Cone Delicious, your Fuji, your so they all look different and they all taste different, but they're all still apples. So that's a great analogy the clones for all these grapes. Yeah, and that's actually a really good analogy. I've never used that one. I'll have to use that one because I think sometimes, you know, people yeah. are listening in and we get, you know, we get a little wine geeky and just want to make sure we're relating it back to the audience that, you know, it's uh, they do have different flavor profiles. So if you're baking a pie, right. you know, you want to use a specific kind of apple. So when you're making a specific right. Pinot, you want to use a particular clone. Right. So that makes, right. Some, that makes a lot of sense. When you're making your style of Pinot, you know, and, and, and as you mentioned, I have the Sonoma Mountain one. So that's... Mm-hmm. They, they've planted different clones up there. And, and so that's one reason why it's a different... Uh, wine than the Carneros Pinots I make, but also because of the climate and where it's grown and how it's grown. Right. So all these things kind of go into play even before you get into the to the how do we ferment them and then what kind of oak do we put on them. So and what really have you seen start over, way back with the grape. Yeah. And what, do you, what have you seen over the years with what are people really gravitating to when you're releasing your, you do three or four depending on the vintage every year. Uh, what, what are your first ones to sell out? Um, well, as I said, I think the Stanley Ranch um, is just—it's a crowd crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. It tends to it tends to be the one you know most people gravitate towards. Um, but then uh, we found as as the more we taste with people and the bigger the group, I mean, obviously you get some that like the Pomard better, some that like the Vanderkamp better. So it really does come down to—it's so subjective, right? What 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 is what do you like? What do you prefer? Absolutely. That is such an important thing to, you know, I always try to encourage people to try new things. I think that's always important. But drink what you like, but be willing to kind of, you know, step outside the box and be open to trying new things. I I do want to bring up, because you mentioned it, and I wasn't aware you were doing this, but you're doing now a bottling of Pinot Meunier, which is uh, really exciting. I've only had a a couple from the United States. And for those of you that may not be familiar, Pinot Meunier is one of the three grapes grown in Champagne, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. And it really is a... A really beautiful kind of ethereal grape when it's done right, and I'm so excited to hear more about uh, your vision for this and what got you into making it. 
Well, um, one one day when I was here in the beginning days of my my um, journey here into Napa, I had one that Domaine Chandon had made, and uh, and I fell in love with it. And that was one of the first times mm-hmm. that that I even knew um, it was could be made into a red wine. And um, and so once I found this Vanderkamp vineyard for my Pinot Noir, I knew he had some Pinot Meunier on the property. So I kind of, um, but it was very little. He, he has only a few acres planted. And, uh, but I always wanted some. And then finally one day he said, okay, Nicole, I have enough. I can give you a little bit of this. And um, so we made, our first batch was in 2013. Okay. We made just 25 cases for the wine club. Um, and, and so for those who don't know, it's, it's a mutation of Pinot Noir. So it has some similar characteristics, but it tends to have higher acid. It's, it's, a, it's a great food wine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great for aging. Um, it's got those delicate Pinot Noir kind of bright, uh, berry notes. Um, we've got really soft, supple tannins in ours and it, and it's just, uh, it's just a real treat treat. I can't wait to check that out sometime. Next time you're back in Virginia, we'll have to open a bottle. That sounds exciting. And I know you also do, which is a huge crowd pleaser, you're doing a rosé of Pinot Noir as well. Yes. Yes, and that's um, that's going to – our new vintage is going to hit the markets in the spring. We're going to bottle it up in the end of February. And uh, rosé I started making because I fell in love with that uh, while working in France as well. Um, It's just such a a fun wine in the summertime, of course, but really any time of year for that in-between – um, you don't want a white, you don't want a red. It's just, it's just, if it's made well, to me, it's, it's just, you could slurp down bottle after bottle. Yeah. It can be a little dangerous, especially on the beach, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like you mentioned, people think about it as a summer wine, but it is so uh, versatile with food. It's also a great aperitif, you know, instead of a, I love doing sparkling, but you can also have that to kind of start off your evening when you right. have guests over. Right. And I do want to mention. I do say a, though, a lot of people still are afraid of it. If we have uh, our whole lineup in front of people and, uh, um, Mostly men, I have to say, but they'll say, no, I'll just skip the rosé. I'll wait for the red. And They're afraid of pink, right? And if we put the glass in front of them, <laughs> and they really actually do love it. Um, and, of course, some people think it's sweet because they're used to the white Zinfandel. Sure. But a, a lot more people are learning that there are amazing dry rosés out there. And it is, um, as you said, important to just try so many different um, producers and styles and regions because they, they're, they're all – you might try one and say, oh, I, I hate this, and then you think you hate rosé. But right. you could try another one that's made from a different area by a different winemaker, and it really it really could just knock your socks off. Well, the same thing goes with pretty much anything out there. Oh, I just exactly. I had one bad experience with this grape or this food or this mm-hmm. beer or this tequila, and mm-hmm. I'll never drink it again. Well, yeah. there's yeah. thousands of varieties to choose from, So, right. um, and many, right. many producers doing it. So, um, And even temperature can make a big impact on what you're tasting. So um, exactly. I know you're sold out of your 2015, but your 2016 will be on the market coming up soon. And one yeah. other, um, I know you have a you have a pretty broad uh, portfolio with your Pinots and Rosé, mm-hmm. and I know you do your Amrita, which is your white blend. Mm-hmm. And, and I yeah. just want to mention Sangiovese real quick because Sangiovese, I know it's um, been this kind of uh, your, your family's love affair with Sangiovese. And right. it's right. one of those grapes that is, um, you know, obviously it's from Tuscany. It's the powerhouse wine that makes your Brunellos and your Chiantis. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's traditionally been a little difficult to grow in the States, correct? Correct. And you're doing correct. it. We're doing it. Yeah, I found some great growers. This um, This man now, it's all organic, and he's up in Mendocino County. So, um the diurnal shifts there are huge. Uh, it'll be 100 degrees by 10 a.m. when we're sampling, but in the in the middle of the night, you know, uh, it's really cold. So um, 
Sangiovese is, is thicker skin than Pinot. It can take this, and this vineyard is made of multiple clones already, so I don't have to. I just can just pick my block, and I, I kind of get what I want. Um, and but then I can I can beat it up a little more in the winery. I like to say because it can handle that. It actually likes that. It likes racking. It likes air. It likes you know. It likes to have um, more done to it than the Pinot Noir does. Um, but I don't overdo that either. I tend to still treat it more like a Pinot. Um, and, and have a gentle hand, and, and I think that's how I've, I've come to kind of make a wine, a Sangiovese, that, that people really are wowed about. Um, and you do have California. quite a following. You do have quite a following with yeah. your Sangiovese, because yeah. I know you were going to stop making it, and people were like, don't you dare right. stop making it, right? I know. I know. Yes. <laughs> that's what people love. So, and I, I have a big, yeah. I'm a big fan of Sangiovese, too, and I know yours has been, um, I've had several vintages of yours, and they've all been a little different, which is cool, too. I love doing side-by-side mm-hmm. vintage tastings. Um, yeah. So that's really exciting. So, Nicole, we are actually almost out of time here. I want to make sure we give them your uh, web address, and uh, that is abiuniswines.com. That is spelled A-B-I-O-U-N-E-S-S, wines.com. They can take a look at that. You also have a wine club. Yes. And, uh, we started that a couple of years ago, and there's a couple of different levels of that. Okay. So you can either have a case or two cases shipped to you a year, and and uh, we let you customize after a year. So if you prefer Sangiovese and no Pinot, then we'll ship that right to you. Whatever you like, right? Yes, there you exactly. go. And uh, right now your wines are available in Virginia. They're available, um, mm-hmm. widely available down in the Hampton Roads area as well as in northern right. Virginia. Uh, mm-hmm. And your distributor is Z Wine Guy. We wanted to give that information, too, if you're in Charlottesville or Richmond and you want to you wanna taste one of Nicole's wines. The, uh, it's Z, as in just the letter Z, wineguywine at AOL.com. You can reach out to uh, Greg Zimple and ask him about uh, some placement or even ask uh, your local wine shop if they can get one of your wines in. They're usually pretty good about that it is available in Virginia. So that sounds great, Nicole. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know you're getting over a cold, so we appreciate it. And uh, exciting about all those new great things that are coming your way. And I wish you a very successful vintage this year. And uh, Thank you so much. And we'll see you when we're back in Virginia. And we'll do some more tastings and dinners and fun things like that. So, yeah, also check out uh, Nicole's website about that. When she is in Virginia, she does some tastings at some restaurants. So it may be worth a trip down there to meet Nicole and check that out. Uh, Some really fantastic wines in her lineup. Again, Nicole, thanks so much. I look forward to uh, seeing you soon. Thank you. And thank you so much for tuning in to Crystal Pellet's Wine Country this week. I look forward to seeing you back here next Saturday morning at 8.30. In the meantime, you can always find me on crystalpellet.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great weekend. Cheers.